Thank you, Jim. And good morning once again. This morning's comments I'm going to do here in the circle. Can you hear me? Yes. Is it okay? You can? Yes. All right. Good. So, so it's World Communion Sunday. So hold on, folks, because that means that there's 7, million, 7 billion people in the world on their way here. World Communion Sunday. They're all coming. It may get very crowded very soon. They will be coming from 196 independent countries. That was at last count. And also at last count, they will be speaking more than 6,500 languages. The most common one among them will be... No. No. English. Chinese. Mandarin. Mandarin, Chinese. One... 1.2 billion people in the world speak Mandarin Chinese, followed in a close second and third by about 380 million for English and Spanish. Now on their way here, for every hour they travel, there will be 16,920 babies born every hour, and 8,500 people will go to their final rest every hour. At the end of the day, there will be over 200,000 more of us, or almost 74 million more people on the planet at the end of the year, a net gain of 74 million people. Now, of course, this is all statistically speaking. There really isn't anyone who keeps track and counts everybody. In fact, it's all arithmetic. By comparison, in the first century, it is estimated that there were about 200 million people worldwide. First century, 200 million people worldwide, about a million of them in the Roman Empire. And we don't know, but somewhere around 30 to 40,000 in the city of Jerusalem. Now, Jesus would not have known how many people there were in the world perhaps even in the Roman Empire, although he and his family did go through a census. That's part of the early Gospels. They went on a census. And they weren't conducted all that regularly. It's not like we have them every 10 years. And the census, we believe that the Gospel writers are talking about, took place in 6 7 in the Common Era. So there's a little bit of how old was Jesus then, and we're not quite sure of the times, but that was the one that we think. And it's pretty clear that even though the Romans knew what the count was for their taxes and other purposes, they didn't publish the results in their Bureau of Labor Statistics. So nobody really knew how many people there were. At least Jesus would not have necessarily known. But he would have known there were a lot. And suffice it to say that he would have faced some of the same challenges that we do, I think. Living in worlds where there are more people than we will ever know. Sisters and brothers whose names we will never know. And added to that, added to the fact that we know not every person, what we do know is that every person is a child of God, the same God who created us. No exceptions. 
And so, keeping that in mind, in Jesus' world and in our world, we do the same thing that I believe Jesus did. We invite them all to the table. No exceptions. All to the table. So, what does that really mean? Well, sometimes it gets a little confusing. Sometimes we have a table and we say, yes, everybody's invited, and then there's that conjunction, but. And I have some friends that say that everything after but is nonsense or not true. They use some other words. But it's what follows that but that we're dealing with, and it's what follows that but that I believe in many ways the Gospels and our work and our lives are about. Let's go to this morning's readings at this point. Um, I don't want to skip them, okay? Even though one or both may seem a bit problematic, even though they may be some of those texts that people say, you know, well, we don't like to talk about this because it's really hard to talk about, especially in terms of hospitality and welcoming and marriage and divorce and how gender plays into that. But we can't move away from the difficult texts either. There is something in those texts as well for us to learn or to think about or to struggle with. So let's do that for a minute. And we'll take Psalm 26 first. Now, Jim, thank you for reading both so, so well and powerfully. And in Psalm 26, did Jesus really subscribe to what the psalmist said without exception? Do you think Jesus really said, yep, that's the psalm. Psalmist said it. Maybe King David wrote it. I'm with it. I really don't know. The first part, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, God, and I walk in faithfulness to you. The psalmist said that. I think we all would try to agree with that, to strive and to seek and to see and walk in such a way, being faithful to God. But then the psalmist goes a little further. He says, and here's my proof of that. Here's my proof of my faithfulness. I do not sit with the worthless, nor do I consort with the hypocrites. I hate the company of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. Sound like Jesus? Well, maybe Jesus agreed with this at one point, early on in his upbringing, but it seemed to change as he got into his adult ministry. In fact, he was often criticized for sitting with such people, for eating with such people, for drinking with such people, and for healing folk who might have fallen into these categories. So it seems probably that Jesus didn't agree with everything that the psalmist had wrote or the teachings of the psalms that folks had followed, many of which were already a thousand years old by the time Jesus began his ministry. Times had changed. Things were different. And there also seems to be a sense or a leaning in Jesus' ministry in which he moved freely within these groups, ate and drank with those who were marginalized and oppressed, and appeared to have a good time with them as well. There seems to be a sense that perhaps the only reason that people needed these strident, stringent, and rigid rules 
was because they were loose or evil. It wasn't because they were loose or evil or hypocrites. They didn't need the rules because they were loose or evil or hypocrites. Some of them were, but these were symptoms of something they were missing and something that had happened as a result of what they were missing. Their hearts hardened. And so they had forgotten the rule of love. They had forgotten the concept of a soft and warm heart. And if you're trying to get millions of people to behave by loving one another in such a way, you will probably get frustrated at some point and begin writing rules and enforcing them. That's what I think Jesus was talking about. I think what he was saying that after all of these discussions that people had had, they went to Jesus. They were always testing Jesus. So the Pharisees went to Jesus and they said, well, what do you think about divorce? You know, that was one of the problematic issues of their times. What, what do you think about divorce? And Jesus says, well, what did Moses teach? And they said, well, you know, you could divorce your wife if you had a paper of dismissal. And they said, but what do you think, Jesus? And, you know, he said, you know, it was your hardness of heart that, that produced these rules. Fine, you know what I think? I think no. I think no, you don't divorce. I think no, you stay with you. I, in fact, I think even more, if you divorce your wife or your wife divorces you and then you get married, you're committing adultery, she's committing adultery, that's what I think. How do you like that? Now, now go away. Go think about that for a while. Maybe he was just tired of their games. It's very difficult to know exactly what these words mean for us. Jesus' words for us, as recorded in the gospel 2,000 years later. But times have changed, and things are different. Times have changed as they did from the psalmist to Jesus, and they have changed from Jesus to us. I doubt that there is a person in this room or that we could find anywhere who would, who would suggest that somebody should remain in a marriage that was abusive or that should have never been consummated in the first place for any number of reasons. I doubt that many here would agree with the argument that God's love brings loving couples together. I believe that everybody would agree with the argument that God's love brings loving couples together and nobody should mess with that regardless of the nature of the loving couple, same or different gender. But people do argue, and they do test us, just as they argued and tested Jesus. And sometimes the numbers of people doing the arguing and pushing back are so great and so loud and seem so smart and, quote, so strong and powerfully that we wonder if we've gotten something wrong. And then there's that frustration that adds to it. The frustration that we have this table, this welcoming table, and we say, how do we ever get to all of the people? Look at them all. God, how do I tell them? How do I let them know? How do we bring them to them your message of love and welcoming? How do we do that? There is evidence in the Gospels that Jesus said things much like that. There were frustrations in the gospel. You heard Jesus say things like, don't they get it? What is taking them so long? Who are these people? Get thee behind me. Don't you? Jeez. 
I spoke a little bit about this a couple of weeks ago, about what do we do when we have these questions in our own lives about how we reach people, how I reach people in my ministry. I talked about being in the Apple store in the middle of the night in a Mecca, marketing Mecca, and thinking, here's all of these people. How do I carry this message of God? Aren't, aren't I ordained to do that? Or am I just here to be another techie guy? Is it a wonder that with such winds of contention, is it a wonder that with such questions and conflicts, that a smart teacher, a rabbi, like Jesus, is it a wonder that he wouldn't keep his message simple and repeatable? Jesus, what is the most important commandment? Jesus, to love God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your might. And the second is like that, to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, how often should we do these things? Always. When you break bread and you drink from the cup, every time you sit down with a meal, whether it is with those who know you or those who are strangers, do this. Be with all God's children and remember me and remember my teachings and remember what is most important of all. What's that, Jesus? To love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might and one another as yourselves. It's so simple. A simple commandment for complicated people. So this morning as we approach this table and these many breads that reflect bread as many loves reflect love, as we come together in a world of more people than we will ever know, sisters and brothers whose name we will never call them by their name, as we share this bread and this cup with each other, enter into the energy in this space that indeed joins us with all creation, all the angels, all the saints, all who have gone before, all who are here now, all who will follow. Let us love one another as Jesus loved. And let us bring that love wherever we go, one table, one meal, one conversation, one prayer at a time. For here's what I think. We are the world communion. World communion is not an action, but a collaborative way of being, reflecting what it is that already binds us. So let me say to us all and to me that we always should live in remembrance of Jesus and his teachings. Always love and be ready to grow in love's ways. And let us invite God, Jesus, Spirit, this invincible spring where life is eternally new, to dwell with us this morning, this very morning, in this crust and in this cup with all the world here, now in our midst, no kidding. For you, my sisters and brothers, are already world communion. You just need to say so.
Amen. souls are one. 